How's everybody doing? Like I said, we're going to be in Colossians this morning, so I hope you are ready. We're continuing where we left off. It's been a while. It's been a while. But we're going to be in chapter 4, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, Colossians chapter 4. This is the fourth and final chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. And the text we're going to look at is verses 5 and 6. So Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6 are our text. And just as a reminder of what we looked at last time, verses 2 through 4. And in verse 2, we, we looked at Paul's exhortation to the Colossian Christians to continue steadfastly in prayer. And then in verses 3 and 4, he asked them to pray for him personally, that God would open a door for the gospel to advance through his ministry. And though he was confined under house arrest in Rome, Paul's prayer request was that God would still present him with opportunities to preach the gospel to people and enable him to preach it with clarity and thus effectively. That was his prayer request. So again, confined, and yet he didn't want the ministry to be confined with him. He wanted God essentially to bring people to him that he might witness to them and continue his fulfilling his calling as an apostle. And that brings us to verses 5 and 6, our text this morning, where Paul, with the advancement of the gospel still in mind, so that's the context. He just prayed, asked for prayer regarding that. So with the gospel advancement in mind, he gives his final exhortations on Christ-centered living to the church at Colossae. So remember, really starting in chapter 3, he's laying out what Christ-centered living looks like. And these are the final exhortations. And then after this, there's uh, final greetings in his letter, which are pretty extensive in this letter. So these are the last exhortations. So let's read them, verses 5 and 6. What does he say? Walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So Paul had addressed earlier, back in chapter 3, what living in a manner worthy of the Lord looks like, Christ-centered living. What does it look like to live in a manner worthy of the Lord? He laid that out, and he laid it out in the context of the church, how you're to relate to one another in the church. Then he laid it out in the context of the home, your household, which in that day included the master-slave relationship. The closest parallel we can draw to our current context and situation is the employee-employer relationships, essentially the home, the workplace. So Paul has covered those areas or those spheres of life, church and the home, the household. And here... He now addresses what living in a manner worthy of the Lord looks like in the broader context of secular society. Secular society. Notice that he says, toward who? Toward outsiders. Toward outsiders. So he's specifically referring to how we are to conduct ourselves toward unbelievers, toward those who are outside of the faith and thus outside of Christ. 
We live among people who don't know Christ and are still in spiritual darkness as we once were. They're all around us. They're in our community. They're in our neighborhood. They're in our workplace. And for some of us, they're even in our own household. Little ones are born in sin, so that's a given if you've got little kids. So outsiders are, we live among them, and they're in all these different spheres of life. No matter what earthly realms we may have in mind, there's, there is simply one spiritual divide. So again, church, home, workplace, there are these different realms in life in which we live, in which we operate. But from a heavenly perspective, there, there's one simple divide, and it's a spiritual divide, and that's between those who are in Christ and reconciled to God and those who are outside of Christ and separated from God. There's no middle ground, either in Christ or outside of Christ, either reconciled to God or still living in rebellion against God. Leading up to this passage, Paul had just asked the Colossians in verses 3 and 4 to pray for the advancement of the gospel, and now he's exhorting them to live for the advancement of the gospel. Pray for it, but also live for this purpose. And when you hear the phrase advancement of the gospel, when you hear that, advancing the gospel, what comes to mind? What kind of activity comes to mind? I'll let you think for, ooh, ooh, this is like calm response here. Sure, go ahead. Sorry, it's hard for me to hear up here. All right, but you have something in mind. Musicians, I guess I'm a little hard of hearing. But you think of things, right? Advancement of the gospel. You might, you might think of very specific things. Perhaps, perhaps you think of local churches sending out missionaries, huh? Sending out missionaries. Or conducting short-term mission trips. Advancement of the gospel. Maybe you think of open-air preaching or door-to-door evangelism or handing out gospel tracts. Advancement of the gospel. Maybe you think of some sort of program or event that draws a crowd and includes a gospel message. Maybe that comes to mind. Now, these are all different means. They're all different means through which the gospel can be made known to lost souls and thus advance advance uh, in the world as the Lord saves those who believe. I mean, these are, these are means by which he certainly can do that. However, what do we see in this passage? What does it make clear? It makes clear that the advancement of the gospel is not limited to any particular form of evangelistic activity, nor is it limited to any particular group of Christians within the church, is it? not pastors or missionaries or really gifted communicators. What do we see in this passage? Who's Paul talking to? He's talking to the church, the whole church, brothers and sisters in Christ, every one of them. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that every Christian is called to participate in the Lord's work of advancing the gospel. In other words, we are all to take part in fulfilling the Great Commission, which is what? Essentially what? Make disciples 
of Jesus Christ, which obviously starts with evangelism. It starts with us making the gospel known to those who are outside of Christ, those who have not submitted to Jesus as Lord, those who are not trusting in him for deliverance from the righteous wrath of God that is due to them for their sins. So we are to communicate what God has revealed in his written word so that those who are enslaved to sin and living in rebellion against God may come to understand and believe the gospel so that they may be, what, forgiven and set free from sin and be reconciled to God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. That's evangelism. It's proclaiming the gospel to those who are outside of Christ. That is evangelism. That's what Paul is getting at in this passage, the, the ability to give an answer to outsiders, which we see at the end of verse 6. You see where he's going? Look at the end of verse 6. It's to give an answer to who? To outsiders. About what? Well, certainly the gospel. However, notice what Paul addresses first. We're to proclaim the gospel that people might know and believe and place their faith in Christ. But he doesn't start with our speech, does he? What does he start what is with? He, what does he address first? Not our speech, even though it's through speaking that we make the gospel known so that people may know the truth about Jesus and call upon him to save them from their sins and rescue them from the final judgment. Certainly they need to hear the gospel. Sinners come to faith through Christ uh, to faith in Christ through hearing the word concerning Christ, right? Is there any other way? It's hearing the word of Christ that people come to faith in Christ. And ha- what is that? That's communicated to them through redeemed sinners like us. It's, it's spoken. It's communicated. And yet, what does he address first? He addresses our conduct. You see that? Addresses our conduct. He says we are to walk, in other words, conduct ourselves, in wisdom toward those who are not Christians. And the word toward is telling. Paul does not say, walk in wisdom around outsiders, but toward them. What does this imply? What does it imply when you're walking toward outsiders? It implies that we who are in Christ are expected to have personal relationships and interactions with those who are outside of Christ. No Christian bubble. It's assumed that you are interacting with those who are not Christians. You're interacting with the world personally. You have relationships, interactions with those who are outside of Christ. We have been delivered from the spiritual domain of darkness through faith in Christ, but we still continue to live among and are expected to personally personally interact with those who remain in that domain and are still in bondage to their sin. We don't, we don't separate from them in, in the sense of having nothing to do with them. It's very clear in this passage that we who are in Christ are not called to retreat from the world, but to engage it for the purpose of advancing the gospel. Some of you might have certain examples in mind of Christian sects or groups that Pretty much, they do retreat from the world. Us four, no more. Close the door. Got to live in our bubble. 
That's not biblical. That's not biblical. We are not called to retreat from the world, but to engage it. In what sense? For the purpose of advancing the gospel. Engaging unbelievers does not mean, for clarification here, doesn't mean conforming to or approving of or participating in their sinful practices. Right? They're still enslaved to sin. They still have a bent away from God towards rebelliousness and wickedness. We, by God's grace, have been given a new heart, inclined towards him, though we still do sin. We're called to be set apart from the world in the sense that we don't conform to it, we don't approve of it, we don't participate in that which is sin in the eyes of God. So what does it mean that we're to be engaging unbelievers? It means relating to them as fellow image bearers of God in order that you might point them to God. Paul said in his letter to the Christians in Ephesus as a illustration of this point or expansion of this point. I'm going to start in verse 5. I guess I forgot to put it up there. For you may be sure of this. Is that up there for for you may be sure of this? All right. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 5. For you may be sure of this. Listen up. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. You see, so your nature has changed. You're no longer darkness, you're light, but that light isn't to retreat and be hidden away. It's still to be shining in the darkness, to expose unfruitful works of darkness, as he said there. We are, as the Lord said, the spiritual light of the world. The light of the world. So just as physical light is of no benefit to those around it if it's covered up and hidden, so spiritual light is of no benefit to the world if it's kept confined within the walls of the local church. What use is that? What benefit is that to a a fallen world? People are enslaved to sin. They need to be delivered. They need salvation. We are the light of the world. They need that light to expose their sin for what it is and point them to the truth of salvation in Christ. So we've been set apart from the world in Christ, but we remain in the world so that we might win others to Christ. That's the Lord's plan for us. He prayed In his high priestly prayer, John chapter 17, he prayed that the Father would not take us out of the world, but protect us from the schemes of the devil while keeping us in the world. 
And what is he doing? He's building his church by means of the ministry of his word through us, through us. Now, if we are to be proclaiming his word, then we certainly must be living it, wouldn't you say? You have a message. Do you live consistently according to that message that you're proclaiming? And we're not just to be living according to his word among ourselves. Hey, accountability. Got to make sure I'm good around them because they're going to hold me accountable. But then when I'm not around my brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm in the world. They don't know to call me out. No, we're to, we're to be living according to his word, not just among ourselves, but towards those who do not belong to Christ. Therefore, Paul says what? Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. What does it mean to walk or conduct yourself in wisdom toward non-Christians? Well, simply put, it means demonstrating godly wisdom and Christ-likeness in your conduct towards them. Demonstrating godliness Christ-likeness in your conduct towards them. And Paul explained what that looks like back in chapter 3. He was laying that out. It is demonstrating compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, forbearance, and love. Is that what non-Christians see in you? Do they receive that kind of treatment from you? That's Christ-like conduct. We're to demonstrate that towards outsiders. A passage we could turn to for further clarification on wise living toward others is James chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. James, the Lord's brother, wrote this. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So again, when you think about how you interact with those who are outside of Christ, how you interact with people who are still in the world and of the world, is it in a pure way, is it in a peaceable and gentle way when you interact with them or are in, in, are in conversation with them, are you open to reason? Are you full of mercy and good fruits? Are you impartial and sincere? Or you just, do you just talk at them? Why is it important for you as a Christian to conduct yourself in wisdom toward those outside the faith? Why is that important? Why is that very important? Why does Paul mention this? Let's say, for example, you are not peaceable and gentle and reasonable and merciful and impartial and sincere in your interaction with them. Let's say you're not those things. What happens to your opportunity to witness and to speak gospel truth into their lives if you're treating them that way? 
How would they receive your testimony if that's how you are speaking to them, interacting with them? Would they be willing to listen to you at all? Or does it shut the conversation down? Close them off? So we're called to, we're called to proclaim the gospel to the lost, and it is our conduct towards them that lends credibility to our words. Why would they be interested in anything you have to say or believe anything you have to say if your treatment of them is ungodly, is lacking these qualities of wisdom and Christlikeness? So our walk matters as much as our talk. And I would say that's a great emphasis you see throughout the whole New Testament. How are Christians called to live? That is a big focus. We're called to make disciples, to make the gospel known. But so much attention is given in exhorting us to live and walk in godliness, to be like Christ in our conduct. The emphasis is there because it's by doing that that gives weight to the words that we say, to the message that we proclaim. Credibility. One commentator says this, Paul's words imply that believers are to be cautious and tactful so as to avoid needlessly antagonizing or alienating their pagan neighbors. In a positive sense, they also imply that believers should conduct themselves so that the way they live will attract, impress, and convict non-Christians and give the pagan community a favorable impression of the gospel. That's what we want. Another commentator writes this, It remains true that the reputation of the gospel is bound up with the behavior of those who claim to have experienced its saving power. People who do not read the Bible for themselves or listen to the preaching of the Word of God can see the lives of those who do and conform their judgment accordingly. Do you see what's at stake? How you live matters. Every single one of you. Everyone is called to be holy as the Lord is holy, right? We know that it's, we're not talking about sinless perfection, but we are to live lives that are demonstrative of the fact that we are in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in submission to his word. We are conforming to his wisdom. We are conforming to his values, the things that he is pleased by. Notice what Paul says next in verse 5. He wrote, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Now, the Greek verb translated as making the best use of, so a verb that's translated that, making the best use of, is a marketplace term that literally means to buy up, buy up, to, to buy the entire supply of something. The idea is that you are buying it up for the purpose of using it, rather than passing it up and thus leaving it unused and allowing it to be wasted. In other words, you are making the best use of it rather than letting it fall into disuse, hence the, the translation. So making, making the best use of what? Paul says, the time. The time. 
That is the, the time period or the age in which we live. He's not talking about minutes and hours. He's talking about the, the period of time in which we live. It's, it's the time between the first and second coming of Christ. Christ came first to give his life as a ransom for many. He died to make atonement for the sins of his people and rose again. And he is now exalted in heaven and will return again to establish his kingdom upon the earth. In the meantime, between this first and second coming, he is building his church by the work of the Spirit, through his people's proclamation of the word of truth, the gospel. This is the time in which we live now. This is what the Lord is doing in the world now. It involves each and every one of us. We are his people. He is working by the power of the Spirit through us to proclaim the word that sinners might repent and believe the gospel and be reconciled through faith in him, reconciled to God. He's building his church. This is the age in which we live. How do we make the best use of it? We look for and take advantage of the opportunities that God gives us to speak gospel truth into people's lives. You think about it. These are the times in which we live. What is the time in which you live? The time is the Lord is exalted in heaven. He's already come. He has done the once-for-all sacrifice for sinners to redeem a portion of humanity that might inhabit his future everlasting kingdom, and he is saving sinners one by one through the proclamation of his word, which comes through his church. And as sinners are saved, they are being joined to his church. He is building his church. You live in this time. This is the time in which you live. So that tells you something about the purpose of your life, the meaning of your time here and now, what God God's will for you is as a follower of Christ. How do we make the best use of it? We need to be intentional, right? If that's the, the time in which we live, we know the mission uh, Christ has given to the church. We are a part of his church. He's given us a mission. Our lives should be oriented around that. That should be at the heart of everything that we do. He calls us to different circumstances different situations and all of that, but that mission for the Christian remains the same. So we are to, again, look for and take advantage of the opportunities that God gives us to speak gospel truth into people's lives. And not only that, but we must also, as Paul commanded, conduct ourselves in wisdom towards those to whom we are witnessing in order not to undermine the integrity of the message we're trying to communicate to them. So we have to be just as intentional about the way we live, our conduct, our daily conduct. We have to be just as intentional about that, walking in wisdom, as we do about looking for the opportunities to speak gospel truth into people's lives. You see that? So if you are uncaring, unkind, proud, and impatient towards people, they will be, what, they'll be closed off to anything you have to say. So Paul was reminding the Colossians that the Christ-likeness that they were to be clothed with was not to be demonstrated only towards their brothers and sisters in Christ, but also towards those who are outside of Christ. You see that? Christ-likeness 
It's not to be just shown to fellow Christians. It's to be shown to the world. That's the Lord's purpose. He wants the world to see our conduct, that they might know that we are his, that we have been saved, that we have been made new, that we might be an example of the love of God. That made manifest before the world. So how often do you think of the non-Christians that you live beside and, and work with and even stand in line next to you at the store as potential, the potential elect of God to whom you might have the privilege of making Christ known? Do you think that way? That's a challenge, isn't it? Remember, and I already mentioned this earlier this morning, Paul said, seek the things that are above. Set your minds on things that are above where Christ is, right? Setting our minds on his plan and purposes, what he's called us to do. If I'm, if I'm being heavenly-minded, that should help my thinking, that should help my perspective, where I will actually start to see other image bearers of God, those who are outside of Christ as potentially the elect of God who will come to salvation, who might come to salvation through my proclamation of the gospel to them. We're called to be witnesses. Do we take advantage of those opportunities around us? Do we even, are we even thinking of it? Perhaps the seed of the gospel has already been planted in those people and just needs some watering, right? And we can all relate to this, right? This is a struggle. We, we're, we're in the world. We're just trying to get by. We're just trying to do life. And so we go to the store. It's just like, I just want to get my you know, groceries and get out of here. Standing in line, you know, it's like, hey, okay, just ready to go. Rather than an openness. Am I approachable, right? Looking up. You know, I, I, I have a habit of this, too. So I'm preaching to myself here. I have a habit. Like, I like to just be really laser-focused on things I want to do, get done. I'm out and about, eyes on the ground, just walking here. I'm walking here. You know, I don't like, you know, when people are walking by on the sidewalk, you know, I might glance up, look around. You know, I just like to focus on what I'm doing. I don't, I don't really want to be kind of open to interruptions sometimes. And I'm like, huh, that kind of closes off opportunities. I'm not, really, I'm not really intentionally presenting myself, carrying myself in the world, just in a general way to, to even have those opportunities where there might be some interaction uh, for me to even, you know, demonstrate some Christ-likeness to them and, and openness and maybe engage in a conversation. Something to think about. Always something that we can improve upon, I would say. Now, in keeping with walking in wisdom, what does Paul say in verse 6? He says, let your speech always be gracious. Let your speech always be gracious. And it's, it's not only your proclamation of the gospel that should be carried out with gracious speech. Speech is just a general term referring to all of our speech including casual conversation. So everything from, yes, when you're actually explaining the gospel to someone down to your casual conversations, all of that, in all of that, your speech should be gracious. That's what he says. Let your speech always be gracious. What is gracious speech? What is it? Well, it's speech that is pleasant, kind, and courteous in manner, which in turn makes it attractive. Right? It's pleasant, it's kind, it's courteous, so it's attractive, it's gracious. Paul said earlier in this letter that 
Speech such as slander, obscenities, and lying should be put off completely by the Christian. It has no place in your mouth. It should be put off completely because these things are unbecoming. This kind of speech is unbecoming of those who have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and conformity to the image of Christ. Therefore, any speech that is contrary to him, sinful speech, ungodly speech, lying, obscenity, slander, should be put off. And aside from the fact that the Lord has called us to holiness in our conduct and speech, I mean, that alone right there is the reason why we should have gracious speech, because we've been called to, to be holy as he is holy, to, to walk in righteousness. But aside from the fact that he has called us to holiness, what we must also keep in mind and what Paul is getting at here, again, the context of this passage, is that the way we talk will impact how receptive others are to what we have to say. So he starts with our walk, and now he's focusing on our talk and the way we talk. Let's say you got the walking thing down. It's pretty good. But the uh, speech, a little rough, a little coarse, not very kind, not very pleasant, kind of impatient, right? You see, Paul says, let your speech always be gracious. We must speak graciously to unbelievers if we are hoping to share the gospel with them. I mean, end of story. You're hoping to communicate a message that tells them of things concerning salvation, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, being reconciled to God, being given a new heart, that you might actually love God and walk in his, walk in his ways. Uh, that needs to come from someone who's, got, who's speaking graciously. Doesn't really, doesn't really uh, connect if that speech doesn't match the, the, the quality of the message. So people will be more inclined to talk to us and ask questions if we're gracious in our speech. There's a certain way we can talk where people see at least an open door where they're like, okay, I could, I'm curious, what do you think about this? Like, it's inviting. Gracious speech is attractive. It's inviting. People will also be more inclined to listen to our message if we are gracious in our words to them. Uh, the Apostle Peter wrote this in in his epistle, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he says something similar. He says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Readiness, preparedness, yet do it with gentleness and respect. You know what? In, in the context of that letter, He's saying that you do this even for those who are treating you unjustly. Even those who are treating you unjustly, what does he say? Be, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, including those who are treating you unjustly. And even to them, do this with gentleness and respect. You want them to receive that message? You want there to be an open door for them to hear the truth of God and potentially that God might save that person who's treating you unjustly? Well, you need to be delivering it with gracious speech, gentleness, and respect. So we are to have a readiness to proclaim the gospel by letting our speech always be gracious. And then Paul adds that our speech is to be seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt in verse 6. What does that mean? What in the world does that mean? Well, speech that is seasoned with salt 
is like food that is seasoned with salt, hence the metaphor, hence the illustration. It is interesting and engaging. That's what seasoned speech is like. It's interesting and engaging. Let's say, let's say that tonight for dinner, I'm going to cook you a meal, all right? Let's say I, uh, I'm planning to serve you up some steak, grilled vegetables, and mashed potatoes. Sound good? And again, if y'all are some of those diets, fine, get rid of the potatoes, no car or starch, I don't know. A leaner meat, we can do lean steak, fine. Just go with it, right? It's all American, steak, grilled vegetables, mashed potatoes, sounds delightful. I think it sounds delightful. Now, let's say I didn't season any of it with salt. Just get a whole plate, steak, grilled vegetables, potatoes, like no salt in it at all. Not so delightful anymore, is it? I mean, even though it is the same food, it's the exact same dish. Beautiful seared steak. I mean, everything's done to perfection, but no salt. What happens? You want to eat that stuff? I'm guessing um, even though it's the exact same thing, even though you would say, yeah, steak sounds great. If there's no salt, no, hold, hold a second. If there's no salt, I'm not interested. Why would you not be interested in eating it? Why? Because it's, it's bland. Bland. Bland food does not engage our taste buds, and therefore we don't have much interest in eating it. Not doing anything for me here in my mouth. Not interested in it. Likewise, bland speech is not engaging and therefore loses people's interest. They want to be bland in our speech. Be gracious, but sometimes you can be really gracious, but it's kind of bland. So what does Paul say? Your speech, particularly in this case when it comes to conversing with non-Christians, should be seasoned with salt, Seasoned with salt. It should not be bland. It should be engaging. It should be engaging. Graciousness makes our speech attractive to outsiders. Salt makes it engaging. And both are needed if we're going to talk to people about God's holiness, their sinfulness, and the way of salvation through faith in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You might be thinking, well, what's the salt? Anything that's engaging. Making it engaging. Can you hold a conversation? Can you engage people? That's something that you should be working towards, right? We don't want to, again, we can be very gracious, but very dry and uninteresting in how we're trying to communicate spiritual truth to people, right? So he's saying, make sure you season that with salt. You, know, you, you want to, and again, if you think about a plate of food, right? Graciousness is like the uh, presentation, like, oh, that looks nice. Yeah, I'd like to take some of that. Right? So it's the open door to receive it, right? Your speech is gracious. I'm, re- I'm willing to hear you out. Let me hear you. And then you start talking, you're like, okay. You know? So Paul says we need to be gracious, that our speech would be attractive. We need to have seasoned speech that is engaging, engaging non Christians. Both are needed. If we're going to, as Paul says in the second half of verse 6, know how we ought to answer each person. You see that? Know how we ought to answer each person. Notice the personal nature of our witnessing to outsiders. We are to answer them in such a way that is fitting when considering their particular situation. 
It's not like a one size fits all. I mean, they're people. They're image bearers of God, and they are all very unique. They all have, we all have things in common, right? They've got a common problem if they're still living in rebellion against God, but they are unique. You're talking to an individual. So your speech should be seeking to engage them. And, and again, if you're gracious and you're actually, uh, you know, in your, in your manner towards them, uh, you're considering where they're at, what they're thinking. You're engaging them. You're drawing that out. And then you're getting an idea of how you might give them a fitting answer, how you might answer, um, answer them and engage them to point them to Christ. That's at least what's pictured here, giving an answer to each person. So we must not adopt, in other words, a canned approach to our evangelism. And don't, don't hear me wrong here. Sometimes there are maybe approaches to sharing the gospel. So in a certain way, they are, and you can you know, go through training or read certain books on, on how to communicate the gospel to people who need it, right? That is a, a packaged approach. And yet, when you use that, that's like a framework but when you're interacting with people using that approach, you're still treating them as an individual and you're seeking to engage them personally and trying to give them a fitting answer. Not, a, not again, rabbit trails and trivia stuff, but seeing what, what is this person's holdup? What, what, what is the obstacle to them uh, not being willing to receive Christ? Just again, in their own thinking, what they've communicated. And you can respond to those things. Or for example, someone who is clearly believes that they're a sinner, and is seeking to work towards righteousness, well, then you don't have to convince them of their sin. Some people deny their own sinfulness, so you do have to maybe use God's commandments in Scripture to show them, hey, by God's standard, you, you are a lawbreaker. You're a sinner. They need to see that, you see? So each person is unique. And there are a couple of uh, excerpts from um, two different works that I think are helpful on addressing this issue of of, again, communicating the gospel in such a way that is fitting to those who you're interacting with and not doing a canned approach. This is, uh, the first one's from uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he says. We must, we must recognize the different types of persons, and we must learn to discriminate between them. There's nothing so pathetic or so unscriptural as a mechanical way of testifying to others. There are some Christians who are guilty of that. They witness and testify, but they do it in a thoroughly mechanical way. It's bland. It's bland, just in case you're wondering. No salt on that. They never, he says, they never really consider the person with whom they are dealing, considering that person. They never try to assess the person or to discover exactly what his position is. They fail completely to implement this exhortation, Paul's exhortation. They present the truth in exactly the same way to all and sundry, quite apart from the fact that their testifying is generally quite useless and that the only thing they achieve is a great feeling of self-righteousness, it is utterly unscriptural. So again, we're not to have just a little truncated script for the gospel and treat every person as if they have the same issues or the same holdups or the same convictions or beliefs. 
we're to engage people and to be attentive to where they're at so that we might, again, engage them, point them to Christ in a way that is fitting for them. Another excerpt from John MacArthur's, uh, he had a book a while back called Faith Works. It essentially was, looks like a precursor to the Gospel According to the Apostles, which was a newer book that was released. This one's called Faith Works. And in this, he says, the gospel is not a message that can be capsulized, abridged, and shrink-wrapped, then offered as a generic remedy for every kind of sinner. Ignoring sinners need, uh, ignorance, ignorant sinners need to be instructed about who he is, who Christ is, and why he has the right to demand their obedience. Self-righteous sinners need to have their sin exposed by the demands of God's law. Careless sinners need to be confronted with the reality of God's impending judgments. Fearful sinners need to hear that God in his mercy has provided a way of deliverance. The form of the message will vary in each case. You could say the, the delivery, the form of the message will vary. But the content must always drive home the reality of God's holiness and the sinner's helpless condition. Then it points sinners to Christ as a sovereign but merciful Lord who has purchased full atonement for all who will turn to him in faith. You see, so the gospel doesn't change. We don't change the gospel to fit, again, the culture, to fit the person and take things out so they'll, they'll like it more. Right? Well, the gospel stays the same. But how we engage people has to be uh, fitting to their circumstances, their beliefs, their convictions, their attitude, all of those things. And so for us, this is a reminder of, again, being part of the church, united together in Christ. Christ has given us the Great Commission. And how are we to live our lives in this world? God didn't keep us in the world so that we could basically live a very comfortable, carefree life. I just have, you know, again, the, the, maybe the... American dream, whatever, if you have this idea of a nice, easy life, retirement at the end of it, taking it easy. No, God has called us to be in the world, engaging the world. Our circumstances are different, but nonetheless, we live among those who are outside of Christ, and we are the means. He has chosen to build his church through our proclamation, our witness, our testimony. So what do we do? First, walk in wisdom towards them, towards those who are outside the faith show that our conduct is in keeping with our profession of faith, that we might have those open doors of opportunity, and when we have those open doors of opportunity, being gracious in the way we deliver the gospel message that saves sinners. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning, and Lord, we thank you for this word and this timely reminder that, that we always need, because we, we are a people that are to be on mission. You have given us the mission, and that is to make disciples. Lord Jesus, we are, we are your hands and feet. We are your instruments in your hands to, to bring the word of truth, the gospel, to those who are among us who, who are not reconciled to God through faith in you. And you, you, you have used us, and you are using us, and we pray that you would help us be, be good servants in this regard, that we would be faithful, that we'd be obedient to this commission you've given us as a church. And also, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be more attentive, to be more aware 
of the world around us, specifically the people around us, that we would not be closed off, but we'd actually be considering the potential opportunities that we have in our everyday life, in our interactions and relationships with people, to be a voice of the truth, a voice of the message of salvation through faith in you and your, your greatness and your goodness, that we pray that we might uh, not only be willing and ready to proclaim that truth, but that we would continually be working towards living in such a way that, that gives credibility to that message. Help us. We, we need, continually need your grace. You have been patient with us. We pray that you would help us work at this um, to improve upon being more effective witnesses. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen.